Okay, we are in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 13 today. So, all kinds of fun stuff today. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm just going to get right into this. By way of introduction, uh, we've talked throughout our Revelation series how people oftentimes read this book in a way that seeks to nail down the visions described in this book to specific events or people throughout the history of the world. So some look to the past and locate much of the book occurring in the first century. Others look to the future and presume that much of Revelation is still to occur later on. And so what we would need to do then is we've got to be uh, solving the riddle, putting the pieces of the puzzle together. The Bible is written to specific audiences throughout history, but we must remember that it's also written for all readers. So two specific audiences, but for all readers. That would include us today. So no matter the period of history people find themselves in, the Bible is written for them. And the chapter we're looking at today has caused many people to focus solely on past or future realities. But I want to encourage us, as I have been doing throughout this series, to read these verses as having multiple repeated fulfillments or expressions in the past in the present, and in the future. And to not do so is going to diminish its importance for us today. So, multiple fulfillments throughout history. Okay, so our agenda for us this morning is we're reading about two beasts. Okay, so we're going to talk about those two beasts, and then at the end, we're going to talk about the mark of the beast. Okay? Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to read this passage of Scripture. God, help us in these moments now as we wrestle with this text. I pray for clarity. Uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would rest heavy upon us and that you would do a work in us that we can't manufacture in and of ourselves. Would you show us Jesus? Would you help us to trust him more? And uh, would you work supernaturally? In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read this whole chapter, so it's a bit, a bit lengthy, but just try and stick with these visions. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven." Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. 
It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Sometimes I read things like this, and I wonder if any of you are thinking, man, I wish I had the face mic this morning. Like, I wish I could be in Kevin's spot right now. Because sometimes I read it, and I'm like, man, this is going to be tricky, right? Well, it has been tricky this week, but it's been a lot of fun, and there's a lot of good stuff in here. So maybe this chapter aptly describes what many people surmise about Revelation. That Revelation is a terrifying book filled with horrific events being caused by grotesque beasts. So I think we need to acknowledge the daunting nature of what's described here in this chapter. As we dig into this, but let's remind ourselves, though, that this is describing not one event, but repeated patterns and events, types, throughout history. And we'll dig into that a little bit more as we get into this. So to begin, I want to take some time to draw out some of the descriptions and likeness of this beast and what it then teaches us. So first... The beast is similar to the dragon from chapter 12. So last week there was a great red dragon, and, and this, these beasts have similarities to that dragon. So if you were here last week, maybe you caught the description that was going on here. Revelation 12.3, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And now today I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. Also, the second beast, it says about the second beast that it spoke like a dragon. So there's likeness going on here. And this likeness is intended to communicate the partnership or affinity that's being shared between the dragon and these two beasts. They are united in their attempts to, defi- to divide, to deceive, and ultimately to destroy others. And we see their partnership in this statement here. The dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So the dragon is giving this to the beasts. Verse 4 also states how the worship of the dragon and the beast is essentially the same thing. So the, the worship is going basically to the same entity. Now, What we must understand is how John is seeing a vision that is communicating a spiritual reality of the world that we live in today. So our tendency is to read things literally, and that's going to cause us then to read this chapter and to expect these grotesque beasts to come and saunter about in this world. But if we read this with a symbolic lens, which is what I've been pushing for, which is what Revelation teaches us how to read this, this will make much more sense to us. So verse 3, 
it says, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And then verses 2 and 4 are going to speak about the power, the throne, the authority, and worship. So think about this, marveling, thrones, power, worship. In our world, who possesses those types of things? Generally, it's not the grotesque. It's the rich. It's the beautiful that are in these positions. And verses 13 and 14 tell us how the second beast performs great signs, and by the signs it deceives those who dwell on earth. So what we're reading here is how people are captivated by the beast. These grotesque beasts are drawing people in, garnering their, their attention. The beasts create some sense of fascination. And the fact that people worship it means they want to be like it. They have a desire for it. There's a sense of envy towards these beasts. Also, we see the sense in these verses is that many people are caught up in this movement. So in verse 3, it says, The whole earth marveled. Verse 8, All who dwell on earth will worship. Verse 14, It deceives those who dwell on earth. And verse 16, It causes all to be marked. So part of my point here is how all-encompassing these realities are. That, that when we look out at culture, there's this current sway or trend towards certain things. Now, reading Revelation literally will lead us to think that it's going to be really easy for us to spot or identify evil. But the grotesque images given to us provide us a sense of the evil inherent in these beasts, in these dragons. Not necessarily that it's always easy to see, but that what these beasts are doing, how they're working, is intensely, grotesquely evil in this world. And one thing we find in Revelation is this constant reference to deceitfulness. This constant use of deceit speaks to how evil is veiled. How oftentimes it's maybe not plain for us. Many times it is plain for us to see, but many other times it's not plain for us to see. And we'll jump into this in just a little bit. So what I want us to see is the likeness between the dragon and the beasts. But there's a second likeness I want us to see here as well. And that is that these beasts have a likeness to Jesus as well. So I want to go through a list here and just draw out a number of ways, about eight things here where we can see similarities between the beasts and Jesus. So it says that the beast has crowns and diadems which highlight majesty and kingship. Okay, so we're, we're supposed to see these beasts as holding great authority, being like kings. If we jump forward in Revelation 19.16, we read there of Jesus. On his robe... And on his thigh he has a name written. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. So Satan is trying to look like the king that only Jesus really is. And these names of Jesus that we're reading here, King of kings and Lord of lords, these are significant because the beast is trying to mirror him. And so he has 
blasphemous names, it says in verse 1. He has blasphemous names on its head. The reason it is offensive for the beast to be, just be described with these names is because they're only true of Jesus. That's why it's blasphemy for Satan, for these beasts, to take these names upon themselves. Also, the beast is receiving worship, which the Bible makes repeatedly clear that only Jesus is worthy of receiving worship. Also, the beast spoke, in verse 5, with haughty and blasphemous words. In this, he is setting himself up against Jesus, trying to be like him, trying to be greater than him, but he is clearly setting himself up against Jesus. The authority exercised by the beast was over every tribe and people and language and nation. Very much, this is language that describes Jesus. This is who Jesus is. This is how he rules, who he rules over. Also, the beast sought to mark his followers as a way of demonstrating his ownership. So earlier on in Revelation, we talked about the seal of God, how God will mark his followers. And so similarly here, we see the beast seeking to mark his followers as well. We also see this in the performing of great signs, which seeks to rival the supernatural and miraculous ministry of Jesus while he was here on earth. In the Bible, what we see is, we never see the word Trinity, but we see God being talked about as a three-in-one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so what we see going on here is a trinity of evil. You've got the dragon, and you've got two beasts who are setting themselves up against this biblical portrayal of God. So there are many ways in which we see this, but there's some more, that a couple more here that are really, I want to highlight these couple. Both beasts had a distinctive part of their appearance that communicates to us as readers how they might be like Jesus. The second beast had two horns like a lamb. So it's no coincidence that the second beast is being referred to, described as, with lamb imagery. Throughout Revelation, we get this idea, this image of Jesus being the slain lamb, the sacrificial lamb. And so this is intentional, that as we're reading about this beast, that the beast also is being described as a lamb. The first beast also, it said, seemed to have a mortal wound. So this is intended to represent the power that was displayed in Jesus as he resurrected from the dead. This coming back from the dead power. So what I want us to see is that there are many ways in which these beasts are seeking to draw alignment with Jesus, at least to portray him, so that others would look at him, people would look at these beasts and think, oh, is this Jesus? It must be of Jesus because it looks like Jesus. As readers of Revelation 13 today, what can we glean from this? Okay, so there's many things that we could say about this, but for the sake of time, I want to hone in on one idea, and that is this. Satan is a counterfeit Jesus. Satan is a counterfeit Jesus. This is true in two ways that we're going to talk about this morning. But first of all, 
He sets himself up as a rival to Jesus. In a sense, as an equal to Jesus. So notice this. Satan sets himself up in this way because he knows something about humanity. He knows something about the deepest parts of our hearts. In the deepest parts of us, we want Jesus. We want what Jesus is all about. So you think about the books that we we read. We think about the movies that we watch. We are drawn to the superhero who will vanquish all of the foes. We want that in our own lives as well. We want a doctor who can heal all of our ailments. We're drawn to that. We want a teacher who can explain the deep mysteries of life. We want a friend who will stay by our side. And when we look out at our culture, these are the best stories, telling these stories. Satan sets himself up as a rival to try and convince us he is the better, more fun, more entertaining, just as powerful, equal to Jesus. But what Revelation is showing us through these visions is that Satan is nothing more than a counterfeit. Now, when we look out throughout history, what we should be able to see is that there are many forms this idea of rivaling Jesus has taken. Okay, so if you look back, and many people would go to Revelation 13, and they're going to talk about a Roman emperor named Nero. Okay? Nero, and he was someone who vigorously persecuted Christians. And, and this is what we read about the first beast, okay? In verse 7, it says that he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. You look at Nero. He is someone who fits this bill very well when we think about this first beast. When we look at this first beast, what we should think about is the, this explicit opposition to Jesus. This would be the dynamic where it's easy to see the opposition against Jesus. It's plain to our eyes. And we have many, many examples of this in culture today and throughout the history of the world. One example, Richard Dawkins, a well-known atheist. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, pestilential, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Okay, I don't need to tell you he's got some issues with the God of the Bible. Okay? Very clearly he is opposed to the God of the Bible. This is the active hatred and anti-Christian vitriol that's normative within many aspects of our culture. This is what we see in Satan. This is what we see in the first beast. It's going to take many forms. So Nero, yes. Richard Dawkins, yes. Many other people, we should be able to look at them and say, this is evidence of the work of the beasts in our world today. One helpful way, I think, to think about this first beast is how the Bible talks about antichrists. So many people, when they think about, the word antichrist is never used in Revelation. 
okay? But when, when people try and find Antichrist in Revelation, they will oftentimes come. Or if, if they think singularly, just one Antichrist, they will come here to Revelation 13 oftentimes. So let me read a few verses about Antichrist. 1 John 2.18 Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. So when it talks about the last hour here, we've talked in previous weeks how we are in the last days. We are in this age from Jesus' resurrection to Jesus' second return. This is the church age. This is what the New Testament speaks to. Hebrews 1-2 talks about this is the last day. So all of this is encompassed in this last hour then as well. And notice then it says not just Antichrist singular. It talks about Antichrist plural. There are many Antichrists that have come into the world. So we're not just looking for one crazy beast to come. There are many expressions of this. First John 2.22 Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So this is what I was talking about earlier. The explicit opposition to Jesus. Denying Jesus. Denying Jesus' Father. And then again, 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. This is saying that anyone who blasphemes God and denies Jesus as the Christ, anyone who would put themselves up or their so-called gods as a rival to Jesus, anyone who goes to battle against Jesus is an expression of this reality. And so when we see these grotesque depictions of the beast, this is speaking to the grotesque evil that is inherent in many people today. But this is common in our world. Okay, so the first beast takes a central role in what's going on here. Receiving worship, defying Jesus. But we also have to talk about the second beast here because this second beast plays a supporting role. So when you think of the second beast, one way that you can think about the second beast is it's kind of the public relations arm of the first beast. His intention is to make the first beast look good, to do his bidding for him. So the second beast is involved in, he's promoting in a religious way the things of this earth. He's seeking to glorify the first beast and to lead many other people into this idolatry, into this worship of the first beast. And this is where the second type of counterfeit Jesus becomes so dangerous, especially for church folk. Satan is a religious promoter. The second beast is a religious promoter. He'll take just enough of what Jesus taught and manipulate it for his own self-serving purposes in hopes that he can ultimately destroy us. We can go all the way back to Jesus' day. And we can see this really clearly in Jesus' day. We find Jesus throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, forcefully and repeatedly confronting religious Jews. 
those that when people looked at it at them they would say they look good they look good because of their rule following because they observe all of these religious laws and rituals and what did jesus say about these people jesus called the revered religious folk a brood of vipers so think vipers think what we've talked about recently satan is depicted as a serpent at the beginning of the bible a couple weeks ago, he was depicted as a, as a snake again, okay? So you think a brood of vipers, we should very quickly get to this idea of Satan. He also tells them that their father was the devil. And even in Revelation 2.9, he called these Jews who thought they were pleasing God part of the synagogue of Satan. I mean, these are religious people. These are the people that people would look at and say, these are the good church folk. So as followers of Jesus, we should read this and and we should start pumping the brakes in our own lives. It should be a call for us to really be on guard with our own hearts. To not just assume, oh, I'm cool. I, I do the church thing. I might give some money. I might volunteer a couple times a month. That is not what our faith, what our salvation is predicated upon. It's not the observance of religious rituals. That is what these Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious folk, thought. So what we've got to understand here is Satan is taking aim at Jesus' church. We are at war. This is the part of what we see over and over in Revelation. Satan is at war with Jesus' followers. This is why we read in the New Testament about warnings of false teachers, that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. There are those who are seeking their own selfish gain. This is why at the beginning of the service, when we're welcoming someone into leadership here at Center Church, this is why we go really slow with it. This is why we don't say, all right, four months in, oh, you've done this in another church, come on, let's do it. No, we're going to go slow with this. Even though Michael and I, would, we would have said, we said many times over the last number of years, man, it would be really nice to have others part of this. But we also understand, like, doing that too early, doing that inappropriately when someone's not ready, that's going to create even bigger issues. So the Bible warns of these false teachers. We also see this this idea, this call for us to be on guard with theology that happens in churches that caters to the sinful and selfish whims of humanity. One of those might be prosperity theology. Some of you might know that. Some of you might not know that. If you don't know it, don't worry about it. Just stay away from it whenever you hear about prosperity theology. Or theology that makes God small. Or views Jesus as kind of our genie, just granting our wishes for us. We also see this in having a low view of Jesus' church. That we just have kind of a casual church attendance. A casual involvement. I'll do it when it's convenient, when it's easy for me. It's also seen in an emphasis on morality over grace. It's not about us obeying laws, following rules. It's us believing in the one who has kept the laws, who fulfilled the rules for us, and that's Jesus. 
We also see politicians on both sides of the aisle. They'll quote a Bible verse or they'll do a photo op to appeal to a certain voting block. Any way that Satan can distract our focus from Jesus and move Jesus to the background of our lives or to the outskirts of our hearts. This is why we at Center Church are relentless on fixing our eyes on Jesus, on preaching Jesus, on having the well-worn path to the cross. This is why when I preach, I'm going to call us to belief in Jesus first and foremost. Because at the end of the day, we've got to get to Him. If we're getting to seven more steps, three more steps for you to be a better Christian, we're walking down the path where the Pharisees, where the religious folk that Jesus countered were going. So what I want us to see and to feel here is the pervasiveness of the work of the beast in our own lives and in our own experiences. Understanding Satan is smart. He is smart. He is at work all around us. And he doesn't necessarily need to make it like clearly against Jesus. Just a little bit of Jesus and some other agenda that he has. This is why we must be explicitly about Jesus. Because Satan wants to look like Jesus. He wants to smell like Jesus. He wants to talk like Jesus. And in this, we should feel our vulnerability. We are all vulnerable to the whims and to the deception of Satan. Any man-made religion focused on our works, focused on our comfort, focused on our pleasure, that doesn't ultimately scream, Jesus is satanic. So we've got, we've got to understand, like, Revelation is trying throughout the book, it's trying not to get us just have this one foot in each world, okay? It's trying to make this black and white. You're either Jesus or you're not. It's either or. You can't play with sin. You've got to kill it. So anything that ultimately does not end in Jesus and making much of Jesus' name is satanic. It's satanic. And it will damn us. Okay. Lastly, what I want to do is I want to make a few comments here on the mark of the beast. So this is symbolic. Okay, I'm going to be really clear up front here. We should read this symbolically. We should not read this literally. We should not think like there's going to be a chip in the vaccine, okay? We should read this symbolically, not literally. This is one of those parts of Revelation that gets a ton of ink. But really, when you read, when you read this book, honestly, it has a very small part in the whole scheme of Revelation. So my comments are limited, and that's intentional. I'm trying to model something to you in this, to provide a perspective that I think is better than just going crazy, trying to find wherever this mark of the beast might be. I don't want to make it more than it really is. What we see in Revelation is that Revelation is a book of contrasts. And so earlier in the book, and I mentioned this earlier in the sermon, we find Christians being sealed, marked by God. 
So it's no surprise then when we read Satan marking those that he claims as his own. Now, most people, and I'd say most Christians that I've encountered, when they read about the seal of God in other parts, in Revelation or other parts of the Bible, they don't typically read that literally. Right? Like when it says put on kindness, most Christians aren't not going and getting a tattoo that says kindness. That, that's not what they're doing. These are spiritual realities. This is also a spiritual reality. So we've got to remind ourselves of the symbolic nature of what's going on here. Now, everyone is born with the mark, with the mark of the beast. Everyone is born with it. One of the great things about the mark of the beast is that it can be washed off. The way it's washed off is with Jesus' blood. The even better thing about the seal of God is that it can't be removed. And so even in this, we should be able to see the betterness, the better reality of the seal of God over the mark of the beast. I'd also push against the literal reading or reading this as a literal mark due to everything that we read about Satan. Okay? And what I mean by this is his whole ploy is deception. That's what he's about. He wants to deceive us. So the Jesus, not Jesus, that just seems way too obvious for everything else that we read in the Bible. He wants to trick us. And that would just be a bit too obvious. Okay, it talks here about the markings on the hands and head. And this is speaking to how Satan wants to control our thoughts and our actions. Okay, that's ultimately what this, this is symbolically communicating. Now, we're called, those of us who are Christians, we are called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Jesus wants all of us, not just some of us. Satan, he wants to control our minds. He wants to mark our minds. He wants to mark our hands. He wants to control our actions as well. That's what he's going for. He doesn't care about our heart, though. He doesn't care about our heart. Jesus wants all of us. He wants all of us. And the emphasis here on buying and selling speaks to the shame and the control that Satan seeks to utilize to coerce people. Jesus is not utilizing shame to coerce. Jesus is taking shame upon himself. This is what happens on the cross. He's taking that shame upon himself, not using it against us. And this is what Satan does. Lastly, many people have utilized the number 666 to identify a specific individual. And there have been many arguments made for Nero. And I look at Nero and I think Nero is an appropriate depiction of beast-like activity. I think that's a great example of how Satan is at work in our world. But there have been many more throughout history. It's not just Nero. There are many today that we can identify as beast-like. So when you think of the number 666, a helpful way to read this symbolically is to think about how Revelation utilizes the number 7. Over and over, the number of 7 communicates completion. It communicates wholeness. So when Satan is described as 666, what we should think is Satan is completely incomplete. He might look like Jesus. He might have aspects that make us think, oh, this might be in that direction. But Satan, as I've said, 
being a counterfeit Jesus, Satan is completely incomplete. So in all of this, then, we get this vivid picture for Jesus' church in every age to be aware of the beastly workings all around us. It's a call for us to be on guard. It's a call for us to open our eyes, but not just our physical eyes, to open our spiritual eyes, to be aware of what's happening around us spiritually. I want to end with two points of gospel application. We do gospel application as a reminder because we're not walking out of here thinking about these are all the things I need to do. I want you to walk out of here thinking about this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for me. Hold on to those truths. Believe those gospel truths. All the other stuff, it'll take care of itself. All that practical application, it'll work itself out if we are believing the gospel. So we end with gospel application. Why is this in the Bible? Why is Revelation 13 in the Bible? One reason of many is because of grace. Jesus is all about grace. Many people will read these parts of Revelation and become terrified. And, and we want to acknowledge there are knee-shaking realities here in Revelation 13. But I want to encourage us to understand God's kindness and love in providing us this warning. The fact that he cares about us this much, that he wants to put us on alert, to give us this warning, to make us aware this is happening all around us. This will happen within us as well. So don't be casual about this. This is God's kindness that he's making us aware of these realities. This war is raging all around us. And so we read here in verse 10 of Revelation 13 this call for endurance and call for faith. He's graciously writing this to us or for us because he wants us to endure in faith in Jesus, to keep fixing our eyes on him, to keep hoping in Jesus. And throughout our lives then, our second point of gospel application is to cling to this fact that the gospel is our way of escape. This is how we get through this mess of a world. Praise God that he doesn't leave us helpless or hopeless. He gives us good news. The horrors filling this world are not the final scene of this story. Take comfort in. Remind yourself, remind others often of the reality Satan is fighting a losing battle. For those of us trusting in Jesus, there is a way out. And that way out is through Jesus hanging on a cross sacrificing his life for the forgiveness of sins. It's the best news in the world.